Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. The scripture taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. It's a story about the paralyzed man. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got, then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. Praise God. Amen. Good morning, church. It is good to be here. Let me pray before we jump into the Word of God. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you that it never returns void. And I pray that whether we follow you, or whether we don't follow you, whether we have any interest in you, or whether we love you, that you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself, and that, as with the title of this series, we would encounter you, King Jesus, uh, this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. Guys, it's good to be here. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Maffey. I serve as a, the pastor at our central congregation. And, uh, and I, I don't know if you've, um, if you've been on the Dublin bus or whether you regularly follow the Dublin bus or whether you're a cyclist and you're in the Dublin bus lane. But on the, on the back of the bus, you're always going to find various promotions and various marketing uh, materials. And one of them that I've saw repeatedly over the course of the last year is... Uh, um, it's a little, maybe two, three foot wide uh, um, marketing slogan with about one foot, one foot high. And there's a question on it. And the question says, and it's, in a, it's formed in a speech bubble. And it says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And so as I get a little bit closer, I'm tailgating the bus to try and get a look at who it is, whether it's a church, whether it's a Christian organization, whatever it is, who is it that's, that's putting this up? And, you know, I, I admire these guys greatly for their advertising and helping get anybody and everybody thinking about their need for Christ. Now, the reality is if they follow the bus too, uh, too closely, they may meet him sooner than they should. <laughs> but w- w- without wanting to sound critical of these guys, of, of their technique, I couldn't help but wonder, because I saw this repeatedly, I couldn't help but wonder, I'm not sure that that's a question that society is currently asking right now. What must I do to be saved? Um, again, I'm not sure it's a question that society is asking. I do, however, think that society is asking. I do think we all end up asking the question, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? You know, guys, we, we've got this nagging feeling that it shouldn't be this way. Whether it's waking up yesterday morning and finding out on RTE news of the conflict that's arising in, in Palestine and Israel. Or maybe it's, it's finding out on Facebook that uh, somebody you knew previously was, was ill or had passed away. Maybe it's an, it's an obituary notice. Or perhaps it's a friend or a family member who's, who's gone through something really tough. And, and you're just wondering, why? 
Why, why, why is it like this? Surely it can't be always like this. Surely there is something wrong with this world. So we've got this nagging feeling to see, uh, to see the, the wrongs righted in this world. We've got this nagging feeling to see, to see justice where there's injustice. But again, we can't really answer that question without grappling with this question. Well, really, is, is there anything wrong with this world? I mean, if, if, if you're an atheist and you, you have no belief in God whatsoever and, and, you, and, and your moral code does not come from the scriptures or does not come from, uh, from the Bible, then, then really you'll, you'll say, well, there, there actually is no, no purpose here. We are all blobs that have come together. We have all been formed over a course of time, not by a great designer, but, but by random chance. And at the very root of it, we do not have any purpose here. So really, it's a, it's a matter of survival of the fittest. Um, is anything wrong with the world? I mean, it's just happening by random chance. And, and you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with that. I, I, I don't have... I don't have the, the, the faith to believe that, for one. And then pastorally, I don't know how I could ever counsel anybody with the fact that this world is just a, a random chance. Things have just happened, and they serve no purpose, particularly towards those who are suffering, particularly towards those who have, perhaps it's been, say, born severely disabled. I don't think that the atheistic answer to this question really stacks up. I think we can all say, yes, there are things that are wrong in this world. And we all agree that the world is not as it ought to be. It's undeniable. You know, some people in my sports club would say, well, actually, uh, the problem is the government. The government are looking out for themselves. The system favors the wealthy. And then others I've spoken to suppose that the problems of the world are societal. So if you, you sort out the issues in society, then things will... will um, be, begin, to, be, begin to just get sorted. Or maybe think the issue is uh, it's racial or it's, it's cultural issues, perhaps even institutional issues. It seems that whatever is wrong with the world is either up there or it's out there. And you know, there's a story about the, uh, the late author G.K. Chesterton that around 1908, the London Times asked him a question, along with various other notable authors, to write an, uh, an article to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And so Chesterton's response, you can see it on the screen behind, was to write him a really brief letter, and this is all he said. I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? He says, I am. You know, Chesterton was onto something. He'd realized what so many people are blind to. And I want to suggest that our world's greatest pains find their root in sin and are only met and restored in Jesus Christ. And so in our passage today, we're going to come to see that our world is a shallow view of healing, but Jesus goes straight to the heart. And we'll look at verses 1 to 4. And we're going to see that humanity's greatest problem then is sinfulness. And also our world is a distorted view of power. But Jesus demonstrates for restoration. We're going to see this in verses 5 to 8. And therefore the hope is that in Christ we, we've got this hope that we can anchor ourselves to in a message that we can proclaim to the city. So it's got a shallow view of healing. If you want to take a look in your Bibles, do keep them open. 
Um, up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, the question has been asked of Jesus uh, a number of times, who is this man or what kind of man is this? He's healed the leper with only a few words. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. This is all in Matthew chapter 8 alone. He's healed the leper. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law with a touch of her hand, of his hand. He's casted demons into a herd of pigs. Last week we've heard that he's calmed a raging storm. And so there, a picture is beginning to form in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9 uh, that this man has authority to heal the sick. He's got authority to calm the storm. And we're going to see today what can he do about sin? And this is what Matthew 9 addresses. So look with me at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat. He crossed over and he came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, Matthew really simply records this um, this encounter in in quite a matter-of-fact way. But the miracle is also recorded in, uh, in the Gospels of Luke and, and Mark as well. And Luke and Mark build the story a bit more. It gives us more of a picture and an idea of what's going on. And it seems these are four friends that are carrying the paralyzed guy on a mat to bring him to Jesus. But the house that Jesus was in was absolutely rammed. It was packed. And so they end up getting up onto the roof. And in that culture, the roofs were flat. There would have been stairs leading up to the roof from outside because in in evening times when it's cool, you would go up into the roof and you you would dine there, you would socialize, you would hang out. They're not like our roofs. If you have a flat roof in Dublin, all you're gonna get is a a leak. (laughs) In this this culture, if you get a flat roof, you're gonna get to dine and and wine and enjoy life upstairs. (laughs) And and once these guys got up to the roof, they began to dig, they get down on their hands and knees and I mean, they were, they were at the same level as a paralyzed guy. He was lying there. All he could see was the blue sky. And their friends were on their hands and knees, and they are beginning to dig. They're getting their fingernails dirty. I don't know if they bit their nails or not. I don't know if they had tools. I don't know what the story was, but they were digging. And I don't know if there was tiles or whether it was mud and clay. Maybe some historians can tell me otherwise. But all they wanted to do, they had a persistence and a determination. They wanted to get to the presence of Jesus. And as they opened it up, you're going to see all, all the, the, the dust and the dirt and the grime coming down. And if you had any sense, you would not look up, otherwise your eyes would be full of it. And the hole opens up and there's this man we see on the screen begin to be lowered to the ground through a hole in the roof before Jesus. Because these guys, if, let's say the five of them, they'd heard about this Jesus. They'd heard about the one who could heal. They'd heard what he could do. And they were full of confidence because he was the one who could heal. He was the one that could restore. And they were persistent. And you know what? No matter what it took, they were getting their friend to the presence of Jesus. And so Jesus sees all this unfolding before him. The guy has dropped down. And I'm sure he saw some crazy things, but this is probably the first time he saw this. And he marvels at their faith. He marvels at their love. He marvels, marvels at the determination of these men. And what Jesus does next actually creates a storm of controversy. And believe it or not, this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, Jesus has, has enjoyed the popularity. So many people have come to see him. He's become popular. Crowds are flocking to see him. Everyone's on board with him. But this is a turning point in his ministry. We're going to see that the teachers of the law call him a blasphemer. 
And this is kind of the turning point that is eventually going to lead him to the cross. And look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Whenever Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Instead of healing the man and restoring him physically, like he'd done with all the other people, he told him, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Be, be of good cheer or, or take courage in another version. And he addresses him, son, he's saying as a, as a term of endearment. And he's gently saying to him, your sins are forgiven. And you, you know, Jesus didn't say to him, your sins will be forgiven one day. Or he didn't even say, I forgive your sins. He said they are forgiven. Jesus seems to know for certainty the outcome with God. And it's met with the religious folk, uh, 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 an absolute rage. And these religious folk are teachers of the law. They know the law off by heart. Their job is to defend the word of God. And, and they're saying that this, this guy is blaspheming because it's God and God alone who can forgive sin. Who do you think you are? But first, we, we've got to recognize, isn't it a bit surprising that Jesus handles a case of paralysis with a dose of forgiveness? Your sickness is healed seems to be uh, a line that will make far more sense than your sins are forgiven. But Jesus, no, Jesus sees their faith and he says, your sins are forgiven. You know, our, our world has a shallow view of, uh, of healing, one that focuses on the externals. You know, podcasts, talk shows, radio discussions, internet forums, TED Talks, Every news station is discussing what is wrong with our world. The thing is, we heal ourselves as being a really progressive society. We are making advances. We are not like what the world was 100 years ago. Ireland is not like what Ireland was 100 years ago. We are progressive. But yet the problem remains. And the thing is, it's not through a lack of education. We've more educated people than ever. We've wonderful teachers, of which my wife is one. And the thing is, it's not through having the wrong political powers in place. Other countries serve to show that problems persist despite a changing of the guard. And the thing is, technology can't fix it. We can't really say, well, the issues back then were because we didn't have the technology. And the thing is, 100 years later, we have the technology and the problems are still there. In fact, often technology will exasperate the problem at hand. You only need to take a quick look on, on X, formerly Twitter, to get a, a view of the cesspool of what, of what society is like. You know, whether it's institutional abuse or cultural appropriation or racial discrimination or even societal cancelling, we cannot deny the rot and the decay in our world. We can't escape it. And, you know, back in the early 2000s, there was a slogan in, 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 in uh, the English soccer game that said, kick racism out of football. And, uh, and I remember as a, as a 12-year-old hearing that the slogan coming in and there was these little bands that you, you, you would have bought for five quid and the money would have went to charity. And, uh, and the, the band said, stand up, speak out, and it's basically kick racism out of football. So I went on eBay, I bought a ton of these bands. I spent a fortune of my birthday money. And I went into school and I sold these bands and made a little bit of profit. <laughs> But, but all, all the lads in school had these bands and it was basically stand up to racism, stand up, speak out. And it was this desire, this campaign of the desire that within a decade, racism would be eradicated from soccer altogether. 
But yet I want to tell you, 20 years on, it is worse than ever. You know, the depth of pollution in our society cannot be ignored, whether you're a Christian or not. But the thing is, it can't be explained away either. And, you know, it would be easy to say, well, you know, the problem is out there, the problem is with other people. And it would be easy to say, well, actually, we need more people to come to church, then the world wouldn't be as racist. The reality is, the problem isn't out there. But like G.K. Chester, we will do really well to say, actually, the problem lies in here. The problem lies in the human heart. Every single one of us has this problem. And you know, the world will tell us to look out there for the problem and the solution. But Christianity actually will tell you, look to your heart for the problem and look to the cross of Christ for the solution. You know, our world is a shallow view of healing and it attempts to paper over uh, the cracks with really good things. And I'll say this, education, really good thing. Social justice, really good thing. Politics, really good thing. Societal change is a great thing. These are good things, but they cannot reverse the greater decay. But let me tell you this, Christianity is something different to say. The Bible tells us that all of creation, even, even our best endeavors, are all subject to the decay of sin. You know, Genesis 3 serves to, to show us that sin entered the world through mankind's rebellion against the loving God. You know, God gave Adam and Eve a, a freedom of will, which meant that they had the moral ability to disobey God. And God gave them these gifts so that they could freely choose to serve him. And then he, and then he tested them with a prohibition. And, and he said that not to eat, or you're, you're free. In fact, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you shall not eat for, and the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 17. You know, God had given Adam and Eve everything that they would ever need spiritually, intellectually, physically, socially. There was no incentive for them to disobey God, but they did disobey and consequently they died. They experienced death as an immediate corruption of their spiritual nature. And this corruption then has affected each and every one of us. It's affected all of humanity as it's followed since. And, you know, you may say, but, but no, Matthew, we, we are, we're naturally good. And some of us choose to, to be evil. But we're naturally good. Some of us choose to be evil. I'm, I'm good. And I know some, some people have the choice to be good, but they chose evil. I want to tell you, if you're a parent, then you will have saw how young children behave. You will have living proof that from birth we have all been affected by the effects of the fall. And if you're not a parent, I'd encourage you, come and spend an afternoon with Emma and Abigail and I. <laughs> I tell you, church, I didn't have to teach Abigail to be stubborn, to be selfish, to be demanding. I didn't teach her to laugh whenever she's deliberately hurt somebody. You know, there's nothing, nothing worse than, than seeing your, your daughter actively try to hurt somebody, actively rebel. You know, I, I want to be a father that raises my daughter to love and follow Jesus. But I tell you this, from birth, she is totally depraved. She is full of sin. Every single one of us has been corrupted by the effects of Adam and Eve's sin. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He's serving to show that there is a link between sickness and sin. There's a link between sickness and sin. Physical illness is a sign that all is not right in this world. And please, please hear this. Sin is the root of all our problems, either caused by us or caused to us 
by other people. Sin is the source of all sickness and death. But let, let me also say this. That you, you may be sick and you may be suffering. What I am not saying is that you are sick and you are suffering because of your sin. It's important to hear that. And you know, atheism cannot give a reasonable explanation as to why people get sick, why some are subject to suffering and why other people aren't. And there's an easy token gesture that can be thrown out, well, it's a survival of the fittest. It's the way it is. But I want to tell you, Christianity can not only give a reasonable explanation, but it can also give a transformative solution. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to tell you, Christianity has a transformative solution. And Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Verses 3 and 4, do you want to take a look at it? The paralytic was brought to Jesus for physical healing and he received spiritual healing. And the thing is, Jesus addresses a paralytic's deepest need. He cleanses him and he forgives him of his sin. And you might say, well, well, Matthew, he didn't even atone for his sin. There's not even a hint of repentance here. But what the passage does tell us is there is a presence of their faith. Do you see that? There is a presence of their faith. It doesn't tell us of the quality of their faith. It tells us there is a presence of faith in these men. And Jesus sensed what was going on in the, in the minds of the teachers of the law. And they, like any other good theologian today, were trained to defend the name, defend the honor of God. And surely, well, they had grounds to declare someone a blasphemer. Unless that person was in fact God himself. You know, Jesus is revealing humanity's greatest problem is sin. He's dealt with sickness, he's dealt with the storms, and now he's dealing with sin. So what's wrong with the world? It's also got a distorted view of power. You know, to this point, Jesus has just pronounced forgiveness of sins to the paralyzed man. And now he's just been accused of blasphemy by the teachers of the law. And there's a power play at hand here. And there's a central question that Jesus asks here in verse five. Look at it. Which is easier to say? And he's saying this to the teachers of the law. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? And he goes on to say, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up Take your mat and go home. You know, church, nothing is easier to say than your sins are forgiven because nothing visible is needed for proof. And to be sure, nothing is more difficult to get. It's far harder to say a word of healing because it, it can be instantly verified or, or, or not. And so Jesus could be accused of some form of sensationalism. He could be accused of, of really just running his mouth making some audacious claims without ever having to verify it. But Jesus, in response to these seemingly blasphemous claims, look at verse 6, but I want you to know, teachers of the law, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And Jesus then does something absolutely remarkable, miraculous, to authenticate his divinity. You know, Muslims will often say that Jesus never once claimed to be God. Rather, he was a prophet. You'll never find in the Bible Jesus proclaiming to be God. And uh, in our Quran, we'll show you he is a prophet. Here in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is demonstrating his divinity. And he's laying claim to a title that was given 
to him back in Daniel chapter 7. He is the son of man. Jesus is demonstrating his healing power as proof to forgive sin, which is the root of the paralytic's problem. He's laying claim to his divinity. He's laying claim to being God. And you know, church, if, if Jesus can take care of the effects of sin by healing the paralytic or healing the leper or raising a dead person, let me tell you this, he can also therefore take care of the cause of the illness by forgiving sin. You know, Jesus raised the paralytic. We can see in front of us this paralyzed man standing up. He has been healed. Wow, if Jesus can heal him, then maybe he can actually forgive me of my sin. The very thing that I struggle to let go of, the very thing that keeps me awake at night, the very thing that haunts me, the very thing that if anybody else ever found out about, I would be devastated. Perhaps even I would be suicidal. You know, as we encounter Jesus today, we encounter the one who can deal both with the spiritual and the physical. You know, Jesus' demonstration of power was precisely for restoration. Precisely for restoration. Spiritual restoration between the paralyzed man and God. Physical restoration to bring him back to his feet again. And you know, in a world where power is gained to wield authority or to further personal agendas or to fuel personal ambition, let me tell you this, the church has the greatest story to tell of the one who had all the power, who had all the authority, but he used it for restoration and ultimately he would give it away. You know, he addresses a man's deepest needs and he addresses, uh, he addresses our deepest needs. You know, the one who dealt with spiritual restoration would later take the curse of sin upon himself. We, we sang in that song, Jesus Messiah, he became sin who knew no sin. He would later become sin so that you and I could have a right relationship restored to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't just deal with spiritual restoration, but he also deals with physical restoration. And the one who deals with physical restoration would one day very soon take this man's sin upon his shoulders as he physically hung nailed to a cross for the sin of this man who's paralyzed, but also for the sin of the entire world. You know, he physically restored this man to wholeness, yet he himself gave up his life to pay for the debt of sin that this man and, and we all owe. And the thing is, he did not remain here because the very same power that restored this paralytic man to his feet also raised Jesus from the dead on that third day. And this is the central claim. The central claim of Christianity is this, the reality that sin can be forgiven. And Jesus has proven this. This is the heart of the Christian message. Sin can be forgiven. How do we know this? Because Jesus rose from the dead. You know, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, or, or maybe you know about him in your head, or maybe you've heard about Jesus, or perhaps even you've, you've saw the effects of uh, somebody following Jesus in, in somebody else's life, you've saw the effects, but you don't really know Jesus, or, and you haven't committed your life to him, I want to tell you, today there is an offer that is extended to you. Jesus offers you full forgiveness from sin. Every shameful thing, every guilt, every past mistake, the dirt and the sin that you carry around, Jesus invites you to put it on him. 
Our world is indeed broken and our world is in grave need for a saviour. You know, many things have tried to stand in that gap. But nothing outside of Christ is able to take that brokenness and substitute it with righteousness and wholeness. Maybe you're thinking of the things that, that you have tried to fill that gap, you have tried to put in that gap. It could be striving in your career. It could be alcohol dependency. It could be putting all your hopes and dreams upon your family. You've tried to put something in that gap that only Christ can fulfill. And so the offer to you is forgiveness of sin. And the question I want you to ponder on is, are you seeking from the world something, something only Jesus can give? And today he beckons you to come to him. And maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, which I know many of you are. And in him we have the sure and the steadfast hope. We have an anchor for our souls that one day every wrong will be put right, that justice will come that the rot and the decay will be reversed. We will be with Christ in eternity. And this decay that we experience right now will be reversed and it will be glorious. But until then, as we navigate this brokenness in our world, I want to challenge you. How might you hold on to Christ with an unwavering hope? Church, we must be those who are determined and persistent to get to Jesus. And not only to get to Jesus, but actually to bring people to Jesus as well. It's got to be this persistence in our lives and our walk and our, our going and in our coming, similar to the friends who carried this person to Jesus. Guys, I want to ask you, what, what are the roofs that you're digging through right now? Maybe you're not digging through any roofs. Maybe you're, you're content to stand aloof and wait until, until Jesus leaves the house and then maybe come and grab him. I want to encourage you, press in, get on that roof, dig, dig, them, dig them holes persistently pursue Jesus. There's got to be something that determined about our, about our faith and about our walk that we, we could bring unbelievers to Christ. There's got to be an urgency. And let me tell you why. Take a look at verse 8. So we can be those who contend before God for, for both physical and spiritual restoration in the lives of others. But this is the reason why. This is what happens. This is what happens when the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus come together. Verse 8, when the crowd saw this, look at it, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given authority to, to man. You know, how we live our lives before the crowd should be such that this Jesus that we proclaim is recognized in their lives as God. Jesus is God and therefore he is worshipped. God's glory must be our greatest concern, not the physical healing, not the recognition that comes from it. God's glory must be our greatest concern, but our greatest action must be to bring people to God. That's why we're here. This is why we meet every Sunday. This is why we do city groups. This is why we do mission. This, this, this is why we read our Bibles. This is why we live in this world. This is why we commit to Dublin for the sake of Christ's kingdom. CCC, what is wrong with this world? Our world's greatest pains find their roots in sin. And they're only met and they are only restored in Christ and Christ alone. And then, and then, I think there is no greater question that could ever be asked than this. The sign on the back of the Dublin bus. What must I do to be saved? You know, Acts 16 verse 31 
tells us the answer to that very question. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this is the invitation that's on display today to put your faith in Jesus, God incarnate, either for the first time or afresh, to rescue you from the decay of sin, from death, to give you a glorious inheritance for all of eternity.